welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. I had so much fun recording today's episode that I'm sure it's going to be a fan favorite. My guest today is the incredible Jeff Hine. Jeff has been titled a living master by the Art Renewal Center and has been written up in numerous publications, including American Art Collector, Fine Art Connoisseur, Arts and Antiques, and Jet Set Magazine. His work has appeared on the covers of American Art Collector, Art Calendar, and two years of the annual Spring Salon Catalog of the Springville Museum of Art. His work has also been shown in prestigious institutions, such as the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, the Springville Museum of Art, and the Salma Gandhi Club here in New York. He's won numerous awards, and his work can be found in notable public and private collections. Jeff has served as a faculty artist for the Portrait Society of America, and he's the founder of the Hain Academy of Art in Salt Lake City. We talk in-depth about the unique pedagogical structure of his academy, and it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm sure you're going to love it. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you feel like this content is worth supporting, you can become a supporter for as little as $2 at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. I'm going to be candid for just a moment and share some behind the scenes with you. Producing a podcast is incredibly time-consuming, and at present, I do every step of the process by myself because I can't afford to hire a team. So my ability to advance this project is directly correlated with listeners' willingness to support it. And since it hasn't generated sufficient Patreon support so far, I've been forced to release fewer and fewer episodes with each passing month. So if you want to help me change this trajectory, you can certainly do so by becoming a supporter at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. As most of you know, I have an Instagram page where I share art education videos and try to help my followers develop their painting and drawing skills. That is my main channel for sharing content and where most of my Patreon support comes from. Allow me to illustrate a dream future I believe we can live in. If, let's say, 5% of my Instagram followers decided to become Patreon supporters, I'd have the budget to hire a full production team to handle the podcast operation. And I could provide free online painting and drawing lessons to anyone who wants to learn anywhere in the world. And if we were to dream a little bigger, let's imagine 20% of my Instagram followers decide to become Patreon supporters. Well, in this future, I could open an in-person brick-and-mortar school where tuition would be free. Ideally, I'd like all my educational services to be free. But this can only happen if we come together as a community and make it possible. I can't do this without you. In case you're wondering what percent of my Instagram followers are currently Patreon supporters, it's around 0.2%. That's less than a quarter of 1%. So to those of you who've chosen to lend your support to my mission, it's thanks to you that I'm able to produce free educational content. You are the reason this podcast exists and the fuel that keeps it going. So thank you so very much. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Jeff Hain. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm honored to do it. I'm a big fan of your work. So before we jump into it, let me just, let's just start at the beginning. When did you discover that you wanted to be an artist? Um, I mean, as long as I can remember, I've drawn, uh, but not in a disciplined way. Mostly, most of my drawing was done in school because I didn't want to do my work. You know, that was really about it. But the first real memory I have of deciding I want to draw, I was in the second or third grade and uh, everyone went out to recess and I was drawing at my desk and a bunch of kids that still hadn't gone out gathered around me. And one little girl said, wow, you're really good. Are you going to be an artist when you grow up? And I remember thinking at that moment about the question, like deeply 
thinking about it. And I remember deciding at that moment, yeah, I'm going to be an artist when I grow up. And I don't think it's ever changed from there. Wow. How old were you? Uh, I think I was in the second grade. The only reason I'm confused about it is because my teachers changed mid-year and I can't even remember who was who. I'm getting too old. <laughs> wow. That's, but I think it that's was the amazing. second. It might have been the third grade. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't disciplined about it at all. I never took art classes. And in fact, when I went, when I told my parents I wanted to study art in college, my mom's like, what are you kidding me? You don't even draw. And which is true. I never drew at home. I only drew in school when I wasn't supposed to be drawing. So I knew I, I knew I could draw. Um, but I didn't do it in a disciplined way at home. So, but for some reason I still was drawn to it. I just, uh, I just always felt like that's what I would do. Not really sure why. And did you ever, did you ever get into a more institutionalized way of like studying art? Did you go to art college? Did you, did you go to any kind of formal training? Um, I went to Rick's college, which is now BYU, Idaho. And, you know, I listened to your interview with Josh Clare. So we went to the same school. Except I think I was, I think I was 10 years behind him or ahead of him. Um, But we had many of the same teachers. I was there for one year and it was all, it was a good school when I was there too. Um, So I was there for one year and then I didn't, that was in 92. And then I didn't pick up school again until 97 um, because I also went on a mission and I got, I got cancer for a while. So I had some, yeah, so I had some uh, delays, but then in 97, I went to Salt Lake Community College. And I had a couple of good teachers there. Um, and then I went to the University of Utah. That was sort of a bomb. <laughs> Ironically, uni- the Salt Lake Community College told me, hey, you're too good to be here. Go to the University of Utah. And, th- and when I got to the University of Utah, I was like, I wish I was still at the community college. I mean, the teacher that told me to move to University of Utah was a better teacher than I got it. Than I got there. So it, University of Utah was interesting. I, I can't say I didn't learn anything, but it was what you'd expect from a an American university where it's just, you know, postmodern kind of mentality. Mm. Um, there were a few good drawing teachers there, not a lot of good painting teachers. Um, but it was very, very narrow in their, in their approach. Very modern. Lots of threads to pull on here, but I'd be, I'd regret not trying to prod at, at, at asking, uh, when you went through cancer and, and, and got, got out on the other side uh, in good health, did you ever make any work that responds to that part of your life? Did you try to engage with that creatively? Well, you probably know I've done religious painting and that's, that came from that. Mm. So the first few paintings I did were paintings of healings, Christ doing of healing people. And that's why I was drawn to that. Um, it's see. since evolved. But, and, um, I've done little things, uh, nothing I've shown in galleries, little things that relate to it, but I, I tend to be more drawn to optimistic subject matter, not dark stuff. I find that dark paintings make me dark, you know? Mm. Um, and I don't want to go to, go to those places. So, so I haven't, I haven't really done anything that relates to the, the suffering as much as the healing and, and, and. I, and I went directly to scripture for that. So interesting. So let me, let me pull back a little bit and, and, and give a little bit of uh, like an observation and then I'll, I'll let you respond to it. So okay. as far as I'm concerned, I, I think I first became familiar with your work in about 2014 or so. And I, 
really appreciated the fact that your style was very recognizable, like very. I could I could spot your painting from from a bunch of of other quote unquote realistic figurative works, uh, and 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 there's just you know no mistake about it. And I'm wondering, did you did you ever spend time trying to think about your style, or did it develop organically? How do how do you think about style in general? Um, that's a question that I really talk about with my apprentices here because I feel really strongly about what I'm about to tell you. So when I was at the University of Utah, um, well, they talked about, you know, it's modernist schools. It's like, it's all about finding your voice, you know? And, um, all I want to do is learn how to paint. I remember going through these assignments at school, just getting them done just to get them done. I mean, I did poorly there, you know? Um, and then I'd go home and I'd give myself assignments just to learn how to paint. Like I'd open up a Johnson, which is interesting because I don't feel like I ever followed in that direction. But at the time, that's what I was looking at. Or like I, David LaFell, one of his students came out with a book. I can't remember what it's called now, but it was at the time, it is a good book. And I remember looking at that, doing some of the exercises in there. Um, but I decided in my head, I don't know if it was an act of rebellion or common sense or both, or maybe not common sense, or maybe just my sense, whether that's good or not, or common or, or what. But um, I remember thinking, I can't learn style until I learn how to paint. And if I just paint, the style will come. And that's what I did. So I just painted and painted and painted. And I started realizing that I tend to make this decision over that. And I tend to prefer this aesthetic over that. And I, I remember um, after my senior year of college, um, my teachers actually let me just stay home the entire senior year, hmm. um, which was a blessing. Um, and uh, so they said, if you just do your work, we'll give you an A and just do your work and let us know you did it, which was a huge blessing. It was, I learned more that year than any year. So I spent the entire year in my condominium, in one bedroom, my condominium, probably not different, a lot different than the room you're in right now, um, just doing paintings. And at the end of the year, I remember sitting with all, look and looking at all the paintings against the wall. There may be like 14 or 15. Holy crap, I have a style. Like, I, I don't even know where that came from. And, and I remember feeling validated, you know, like my theory was correct. So I always tell my students that just paint because we all have sort of an innate way of making marks or uh, an innate sense of aesthetic that's unique to us. And, and if we look too hard, our paintings might look contrived. That's my theory. Mm. Um, and so that's what I implement on mine. And sometimes I have to reinvent myself. I've reinvented myself a few times. And I, I don't believe we all have a single aesthetic, um, but I do believe that every aesthetic that we arrive at, if, if we do it genuinely or authentically, it's going to be our own, you know? So that's kind of how I got to where I'm at. Let me, let me ask. So maybe when you say you speak to your, to your apprentices or, or your students about this all the time, Let's imagine that the people listening are in total disbelief. They say, what? what do you mean? Like, I just paint and paint and paint. I've been painting for 20 years. I don't think I have a style. Can you articulate the strongest, like, iteration of this pitch that you make to, this, to, to your students so that they can get on that 
faith train and, and believe that the style is just going to arrive from continuing to paint? Or also maybe there's a little bit of refinement there of, is there a specific thing that you need to keep in mind while you're painting in order to escalate the development of one's personal style? Oh, wow. Man, you asked really good questions. I told you that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I've got a lot of thoughts going through my head right now. And um, I want to be, be careful because I don't want to, I don't want to make discourage anybody, but I feel like there are craftsmen and there are artists. I don't know which, I know I'm a craftsman. I'm confident in my craftsmanship. I think that someone else has to decide whether I'm an artist. Um, that's not up to me. An artist to me, I mean, one of the definitions in Webster dictionary is something like someone who's mastered their craft. I mean, it's like, so it's kind of pretentious to even say it. But when I look at others, it's much easier for me to make judgment because it's their work and I can decide, do I think they've mastered their craft? And my, my perception is that there are certain people that will always be craftsmen and never be artists. Um, and that you can teach them to draw, but they, their voice, their, their creative voice is limited and, and while I believe we all have a, the same potential, I just think it's for some, it's going to come in a reasonable amount of time. And for some, it's going to take a lifetime or longer, mm. right, to, to get there. So that being said, um, I think this works for the person who has the potential to be an artist, right? And there are some people that, that the potential might be there, but it's so far out that it, they probably should be doing something else. Mm. You know, and I've had many, many apprentices over the years, and I feel like this is my studio is like a petri dish. You know, it's like I've seen it. I've seen people struggle and struggle and struggle with the same curriculum, and others just soar through it. And there's just a difference with the way we're wired. So, so to, to go back to your question, why do some people, or maybe this isn't how you put it, but I'll, this is kind of what I got from it. Why do some people paint for years and years and years and they never arrive at a style? Well, that would be my answer. Well, you have the voice of a craft, you have the skills of a craftsman, maybe not the voice of an artist. You know, mm. my son played violin. He learned violin in, in, um, in elementary school. And uh, now I could talk for hours about how cool my kids are, but I'm going to be real here. They have many, many talents. Violin was not one of his talents. Learn it, and he could play fairly complicated songs, but he never had that. He never, I mean, I've heard people play the violin where it almost brings me to tears. They just have this, oh, like they're, they become like one with the instrument. It's just amazing. In fact, there's another girl who's, who church, and she's like five years younger than my son, and I was almost, he played the violin and my son looks at me and he's like, Oh gosh, she's really, <laughs> he doesn't play violin anymore. He's a, a, a amateur cinematographer and that is his gift. He's incredible. But um, that's a good, to me, that's another good example. Like you can teach them, but some people are going to make that violin just sing, you know, just be so beautiful and, and move beyond the instrument in a way. And it's the same thing with painting. Um, the artist, someone who's got a, the soul of an artist, I believe that if they paint long enough, um, they'll arrive at a beautiful aesthetic. 
on mm. their own. Um, now, keep in mind, like, we're not cavemen. We're all influenced by people around us. And I was too. I, there's influences in my work. But, but at the same time, at, at some point, I have to decide, you know, do I like this better? Do I like my influence better? And, and what happens is you see these influences, you like their work, you experiment with it. And then you go, no, I think I want to do it this way. And that's when your voice, you know, is expressed. So, wow. Okay. So let's, let's argue for a bit. Cause there's, cause okay. there's a, there's a lot that I agree with, especially with mm-hmm. the, with the last sentence that you said that it's uh, to some extent, personal style is directly correlated with the ability to make decisions between contrasting opposing aesthetic forces. If you have to pick, do I paint it this way or do I paint it that way? And you find that there is a decision that just recurs again and again. It's like, whenever I have this choice, I seem to pick A as opposed to B and C, then A is going to recur in your work. Uh, and, and, and over the you know, span of time, you're going to see, oh, here's that, that thing that Jeff does. That's his style because he keeps on picking A as opposed to B and C. And I you think... say it's so much better than I say it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes that. the disagreement, though, because okay, okay. because uh, mm-hmm. I think the way that basically you touched you touched on the infamous talent question, like the role of of being gifted uh, in the in the route towards uh, developing a personal style. Now, I'm going to mildly poke at, uh, for example. Places like Grand Central Atelier, you know, all ateliers like Florence Academy of right. Art, right? So the people who go there are the most devoted artists, the people whom were called, you know, they were called talented in any other framework in their life. People told them, you have a gift, you have a gift, you have a gift. These are like the creme de la creme of art students, the ones that you really would want. And yet, when they go to these establishments, In my opinion, okay, don't come at me, people. In my opinion, they do develop as craftsmen in very, very significant ways, in enviable ways. They draw better than I probably could ever draw, but not, on the st- not in the style dimension, not in the personal voice dimension. A lot of the times I would go to the you know, end-of-year exhibition at one of these institutions, and I would say, okay, like, they're all pretty good, but they also all look the same. Now, I cannot be persuaded that all of these people don't have the gift or all of these people don't have the dedication or all of these people don't have the talent. <laughs> What I think these people are lacking is a broad scope that is going to enable them to make personal decisions. Because if there is a right answer to everything and it's always the same right answer, like in these ateliers, like the right answer is what Bouguereau would have done. If Bouguereau would have done it, then that's what we decide to do. And, and under those conditions... everybody's going to paint like a proto-Bougaro, right? Like a, like a little Bougaro right, right. copy. But I think um, if you took those people and basically even had, even had like a semi-clash of influences, like tell them, okay, at any given moment of the painting, you can paint it either like Bougaro or like Rembrandt or like Raphael. Pick, right? pick and try to make it so that in every painting you have at least one area that's done this way at least one area that's done that way and at least one area that's done another way now you're gonna see where people are deciding you're gonna see okay so they gravitate towards a rembrandt style background but a bougaro style figure and another person is gonna say okay i prefer the bougaro 
landscape background, but I want the textured Rembrandt rendition of the face, right? So this decision of picking where to go in which direction is already the sprouting of a personal voice, the sprouting of a personal style. So in my opinion, uh, the route towards developing a personal style has to do with the actual implementation of educational frameworks that are geared towards encouraging young painters to make creative decisions. What do you say? To okay. That? <laughs> I don't disagree with you at all. In fact, I think that, and I'll explain it to you. I think you're without being critical of any schools, because frankly, I've never been to these schools. So I know how their curriculum is. what, As you mentioned, um, you what i'm seeing i'm seeing the same thing you're seeing okay so i the worst part of interviewing me is i never can remember I, there was a there was a book that a student brought in some of my philosophy and uh if i think of it i'll send it to you but the book had nothing necessarily to do with art if i remember correctly um but in the book this person did an experiment and they told all of the people in the experiment that they were going to do an interview of them. And they gave them a piece of paper and a pen. And then they, then they said they had to leave for, for a moment, but they didn't come back for like two or three hours. And they repeated this experiment over and over and over again. So while they were gone, you can probably guess what people did. They have a blank piece of paper and a pen. They just, everyone doodles. So and then in the book, she showed all the doodles, like tons and tons of samples of these doodles. And they were all very unique. And it was really interesting how even, even, even on a single page where a single person doodled, they varied what they were doodling. They might draw a picture and then they might just like make marks. But you could see similarities from the picture to the marks that, that made it unique to them. And then you move to the next piece of paper, same thing. They might have an abstract area and then they might try and make a stick figure. Same thing. There are similarities in the way they make those marks, but they were all unique from one another. And so my goal with my apprentices is to not rape them of that, like steal that from them. The problem that I see in some institutions is that they are so rigid in how they make marks. They tell a student, make this mark, shade this way draw this way, take step A, B, C, and D instead of simple principles like it should be this dark or this light or this angle or this shape. Like if a student asks me how they should hold a brush, I tell them, I don't care if you hold it between your butt cheeks, as long as you make the right stroke in the right place, the right value, the right hue, the right chroma, all that stuff, that's all I care about. Um, I mean, I give them some advice, like don't stand so close, but I don't see that as I'm very careful to not give them advice that will affect or that will um, cripple their natural tendency toward a certain aesthetic. Um, and it's interesting because I've been doing this since 2007 in this apprenticeship style of teaching. And I've never had two students that were the same that come out of here. There's not, you could, I can walk out there right now. They're all working from the model. And I can tell, I walk to one easel and I can tell if all of them stand against the wall, I can walk to the easel and say, there's Demetrio, there's Juju, you know, there's Kate, there's Naomi. I can just tell by looking at them. You wouldn't be able to do that in most institutions. They'd all look the same. And that's not because that is exactly, that is because 
many institutions tell them step-by-step how to do it. And you can't do that. You have to just teach principles so you don't rob them of their voice because I think we all have that innate voice that's in there. So, so I don't think we disagree on that. I just think that um, maybe I didn't, wasn't clear enough on, or maybe we do, maybe, maybe after I said that, you still think we disagree? <laughs> no, no. If I didn't have recording equipment around me, I would be given this statement, a standing ovation. I cannot agree more. This is <laughs> at, this is so on the money. It's, it's exactly that. And I'm going to take, yeah. the, take the stage right now to kind of, to kind of uh, filibuster a little bit and say, this is the reason why when I, I do a lot of online demonstrations, like live demonstrations, and you can see like, whatever, 60 people in the Zoom. And then some people would ask me questions about principles and I would go on forever and talk about the, like I could talk forever about principles. But as soon as somebody asks me like, what brush are you using? What size? What brand? I can... <laughs> so to the yeah. people listening audio, Jeff just like rolled his eyes in a, in a way that just <laughs> fully captures my feeling about this. And it's, it's not because I'm dodging the question. It's an easy question. I can tell you it's a round bristle size four, right? I could, that's easy. When you ask me about principles, that's a difficult question. But the reason I'm, I'm always resistant, almost allergic to these questions is because I think they're totally useless. Like if you are trying to get the same equipment as me and move your hand in the exact way that I am, you're, you're really stymieing your, your own personal voice. And so I totally, totally agree with you. And so whenever I'm, you know, kind of forced into a corner and I, people are like, but we want to know what you're using. I'm like, okay, here I am. That's what I use. But I got to shout out my friend Adi Graf, whom Uh, I went to school with, we studied painting together. And I always give her as an example, because she would just break all these rules that I think, you know, work for me. Like for me, I would say, okay, I, in this instance, would use a hard brush that's round and big. And she would use a soft, r- soft brush that's flat and whatever, like the exact opposite. And she makes it work perfectly. And that's why when you put my painting next to her painting, we would ne- nobody would ever mistake who made what because she has developed her own style, which is the way that she uses her material uh, way totally differently than, than, than I did. But we both grew up in the same painterly institution and on the same principles. So when you ask us both about value, hue, chroma, all like art history, all those things, we will both give very similar answers, but then you'd look at the two paintings and, and they would be completely different. So just had to mm-hmm. completely concur with you. And, and I want to pull on a thread of something that you said, you said this apprenticeship model of, of teaching. Can you share what's, what's like, what's the model? How do you teach? You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, so just a little background on why I teach like this. So when I first started... When I first left art school, I never did graduate. Um, my, I, I left for the summer <clears throat> and started painting through the summer and started selling paintings and never went back. Um, 
but during that time I wasn't selling enough paintings to make a living um, during and but I wanted a studio so I started teaching just like a nightly class to pay for my studio and I just got like two students at the time and um, that's how I started and I kept that class going even once I started making a living painting and didn't need it anymore I kept it going for a couple years more than a couple years maybe five years and then um, and then I got tired of it I was like this is just not fulfilling at all so I quit teaching for a year um, then I realized I missed it and I was lonely. I was just like, my gosh, this, this life of an artist is so lonely. And um, so I decided I wanted to start teaching again, but I, I, I thought I got to do it in a way that's more fulfilling and that's more practical for me. And that's going to work better for the students. Because one thing I found was in the classes is that I'd see them, even if I saw them twice a week, I felt like they were relearning every week, you know, because it just wasn't enough time. They, they, um, you know, I used to skateboard when I was younger and I remember as an, a, a freshly married adult, I tried to keep up on skateboarding. I do it like once a week. I, I never got anywhere, you know, it's so I finally just quit. Same thing with painting. So I learned that, that one of the things that's key to success for an artist is time. They just have to put in the time. It doesn't matter how good your teacher is. If you don't put in the time, it's not gonna, you're not gonna get anywhere. So that was number one. Then I started researching how people were taught in the past. And one thing that really appealed to me was the way the Renaissance painters were taught, um, particularly was looking at Michelangelo. Of course, you know, uh, who doesn't know Michelangelo, right? And how at a young age, he went into a studio and he worked under a master artist and cleaned his brushes and worked for him. And then eventually started doing much more, um, maybe even working on his paintings a little bit. Um, and I thought, man, that, that is like, that has to be the perfect way to teach. Because when I was in school, um, I never even saw my teacher's studios. And when I got out of school, none of them made livings anyway. But if they had made livings, I wouldn't know how they had done it. Because all I ever saw them was in the classroom. And I thought, but with Michelangelo, he is immersed from a young age in this environment. He sees everything that that master painter is doing. And I mean, how could there possibly be a better education than that? Um, and really what it came down to is what would I want? That's what I asked myself. What would I want? And that's what I would want. So that's what I set up. So basically, I just have a building here. It's about 3,500 square feet. Um, they have a room that they're in. And then there's uh, French doors in between my room and their room that are open while I'm here. And they can come in and watch me work all day long. Um, I'm not secretive about the way I work. I'm not shy about it. At any given time, there might be six or eight of them around me. I only have 12. That's my limit. Um, there might be six or eight of them watching me paint and asking questions. And then, um, there's a buzzer on my door and there is a curriculum, but when they're working on their own work, there's a buzzer on my door, they ring the buzzer. And then when I'm taking a break, I go out there and I'll, I'll help them with where they're at in the curriculum. So I might do a short demo for them, maybe a long demo for them. Um, or I might just tell them what's wrong with it and, and help them figure out how to fix it. Um, you know, whatever they need at their level of curriculum. And they're all working at different levels. So when they get here, they start with a self-portrait and that help, helps me determine where their skill level is at. And then I place them in an appropriate place in the curriculum. And then um, the important thing that really separates mine from other institutions, I think, also besides what I've already told you, is that they cannot move on until they've mastered the area of the curriculum that they're working in. Because 
I don't, my tuition is really cheap. It's like five fifty a month. Um, I'm not doing this for the money. It barely covers their studio space. Right. So, um, if they come out of here and don't make a living, they've wasted my time and theirs. Right. So that is my goal. Um, and so far every graduate from here has gone on to paint and make a living except for a couple who went on to be mothers, but they're full-time mothers now, but they, all the others are making livings. Um, and so it is important to me that they aren't dependent on me. So I don't just put them through a one year drawing program or even a two year drawing program and then just move them through because they've gotten through two years. If they, if they've done the curriculum one time and it's not right, then they do it again and again and again until they master it. Now master, I'm going to put that in quotes because there's a certain, no one, I'm not, I haven't mastered everything. But there's a certain level of professionalism that I'm looking for, you know, and, uh, and obviously it's got to be me who decides that, not them. So when they come here, they know what standard they're they're after um, or that I'm after. And um, that's what they're shooting for. And it's a standard that I believe they can make a living at as a realist. And once they hit that, then they move on to the next level and so on and so forth. So every single person that graduates from here is really, really good without me. Their work stays good and, and, and even improves when they leave. And whereas a lot of institutions, I found that their, their work actually gets worse after they get out. Um, and, and I've actually, it's interesting because I've had students come from other institutions who have these amazing portfolios, similar to the ones we've talked about. And then when I have them draw, they don't know how to draw yet. And I'm like, who did this work for you? They're like, I did it. Like, you did not do this. There's no, I mean, of course, we don't have this argument. This is all in my head, right? But I do ask them who did the work. And they're like, I did. And I'm like, okay. They didn't do it. They were critiqued until it was right. You know, they were critiqued and critiqued and critiqued and critiqued until it was right. So they did it with their hands, but they didn't do it with their brain. So now that they're out of the tutelage of the, that particular teacher, they can't do it on their own. So I have to reteach them. But when people leave here, they can do it on their own because they have to do it on their own to prove in, in, that their competency in order to graduate, right? So that's a huge, um, very important thing to me in this curriculum that they can prove competence and, and even mastery in quotes, you know, before they leave. Wow. Okay. This is, this is amazing. Like I, I, I just, I can't, okay, maybe I'm just, ignorant about the state of of the state of affairs but i didn't even know that anybody is still following the renaissance model so i'm just so happy to hear that this is this is how you're doing things uh i hope i hope you'll pardon me if i drill down a little bit more into this but no it's what, great i'm, I'm what, proud of it what are what are those um didactic stages that they have to work through like where does it start and what are the stages Um, of, of the program that they have to fulfill in order to graduate? Well, there's, there's several broad stages, which you're going to recognize. It's nothing unique to me, right? So they start in line and we focus simply on proportion and they're working in posterized imagery, you know, just black and white or dark and light um, for that entire period. Um, and then when they master that and they get perfect proportions. Now I've, They have to get perfect likenesses, body and face every time. And then when they can do that every time consistently, then they move on to value. Um, and then when they master value, they move on to value and paint. And then when they master that, they move on to color. And then that's it. 
So, but then there are assignments within those areas that they have to pass off. So one example, um, like, uh, let's say for value, value is really the simplest one. For value, they have to do, they may, they may do 50 value drawings, but they have to do five still lifes in a row, um, full value, perfect, without my help, in a row. And they have to be a professional, near perfect, again in quotes, perfect level um, before they can move on to value and paint. So they might do uh, 15, 20 value studies with multiple critiques, lots of lessons, lots of tutelage. And then all of a sudden they ring the bell, I go out and I'm like, holy crap, you nailed this one. And they're like, I did, yeah. And then I go out and then they do another one. I go out and I'm like, you nailed it again, that's two. And then they get to number four and they blew it. They got to start over from number one. <gasps> yeah, I've had people cry oh, before. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you're a professional artist, you can't afford to blow it. Like if they, if they rang the bell, that means they believed it was right. So the thing is, I don't, I don't come up behind them in the middle of a painting and say, you're wrong, go back to number one. No, because I want to give them an opportunity to fix their own mistakes. They could do that to me for crying out loud once they're more advanced. I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, there are many, many times during my painting process where I have mistakes, but if I were to ring that bell and tell them I think it's right and then have them come in and find mistakes, that would be a problem. Mm. By the time I'm ready to ring that bell, there better not be drawing mistakes or value mistakes or whatever, you know? So that's the thing. They rang the bell. They believe they were right, which means in a professional setting, they would have put a work out there that would have been embarrassing to them, you know? Um, so it's, it's harsh, but again, I mean, it's hard to graduate from here. I've only had eight graduates in 13 years, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's hard to graduate. Um, but those who graduate do it. Right. Um, so yeah, it's kind of brutal. No, <laughs> I realize. I, I... I think it's, I think it's so interesting because at first when, when you said, you know, they, they hit number three and then they, they flop number four and then they have to go back, back to the beginning. I, I gasped audibly, uh, because I, I felt like that was, you know, cruel and unusual punishment under, un, under yeah. the constitution. But when you put it that way, they initiated the critique. You didn't just spring it on them. No. And if they initiated the critique, this would be the equivalent of like a professional artist, you know, delivering a commission and the commission exactly. is embarrassing. And this is the kind of thing that can cause, cause you reputational damage that far exceeds having to do three more drawings. So essentially you're not penalizing them for bad drawings. You're penalizing them for misjudging the quality of their work. And exactly. that, that is actually so smart. I love it so much. So you, because you really touch on something that an artist really needs to be able to do. An artist is alone in their studio all the time, like the majority of the time. And during that time, you know, nobody's going to come in here and tell me which one of my paintings is good and which one of my paintings is bad. And I'm going to have to make these decisions when I apply to galleries, when I, when I apply for commissions, like all these things, I need to be the person who is able to look at my work and say, that's successful. And that's a failure. And I think you are the first to have th that I know of to have implemented a system where people are actually encouraged to make that decision. Because even where, where I studied, you know, I've, I've been at a, 
at a point where I, I worked on a drawing for two weeks and then my teacher told me to burn it. And, and I, I was like, first, I was very sad. But then I was just shocked that I didn't know it was that bad. And I remember psychologically, it really, you know, because my teachers told me a, a lot of brutal things and I, I love them for it and I'm thankful for it. I'm blessed to have had their very serious tutor, tut tutoring, tutoring, tutelage, I don't know the English word, yeah. uh, instruction. But that specific moment really stayed with me because what shocked me is not the fact that I did a drawing that was worthy of being burned, but rather that I made one and didn't know I made one and I was proudly displaying it, you know, <laughs> hoping, and, and yeah, I was like, how, yeah, how could I be so far off? And I think from that moment on, I became extremely selective about what I'm submitting for critique, not because I'm like, you know, protective of my ego or my emotions, you know, even the work that was more successful, you know, got brutalized as, 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 as it should have been. Um, but at least, you know, I knew, <laughs> I, I, I knew that I had some gap in my own perception of my work that just had to be addressed. And I think it's, it's amazing that you're that 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 you managed to find that uh like a pedagogical structure that reinforces that must that 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 trains that muscle so just amazing and may I ask well, let me add something oh, let me add yeah. something to that give I'm going to give you one more example that reinforces that principle but I've had I have one student recently who was one one assignment away from moving into value and they were blowing it on one of the models they couldn't get a good likeness. Um, and I asked her, I was like, why, why aren't you showing me the model? Anyway, she, and she ended up never showing it to me she, until the, the model was done and we had a new model coming in. And I was like, why didn't you show it? You could have passed off. She's like, because it wasn't right and I couldn't get it right. And I didn't make her start it over. Because as a professional, if she had tossed that painting, that would have been fine. I've blown paintings, right? And, but I know that they're wrong. I know, but wrong, you know, wrong. When you're a professional, wrong is a little bit of a vague term, you know, what does wrong even mean? But as an, as an academic and as a student, wrong is very objective. Does it look like that? Is the value right, right? That's what I mean by wrong. But um, so this student didn't ring the bell. She just didn't show me. She threw that drawing away and she's gonna do number five again. And so there, there's the difference. And you've sort of already pointed out, but just to reinforce that, that's the difference. Like she, that's a professional mindset. Don't let it out of your sight. She had the mindset to know that it wasn't accurate enough and wouldn't be approved. So she just didn't show it to me where the other student actually thought it was right. There's where the problem lies. The other student actually believed it was right. That student had to start over. So that's okay. I kind of, I kind of want to go and, and like see the studio at work and, and see the students. You, you've really, you've really made it sound like it's a unique place to, to, to come and hang out. I want to ask something. So there is, as far as I'm concerned, there is, or slash there should be some room for what we can call maybe experimentation while you're a student. Um, do you have any kind, and, and I'm just asking because you seem to have really great ideas about pedagogical structures. Do you have any room for that in your program? Like letting people know whatever, one day out of two weeks, break all the rules or something along that line? Or is that totally out of the question? Um, I wouldn't say I go as far as say one day out of every two weeks, break all the rules. The problem I found 
because I have experimented with this over the years is uh, like, let me give you one example. So I had, uh, I had a student who was really anxious to paint, but they weren't qualified, based, you know, based on my curriculum at all. But I was going out and doing some plein air painting and they're like, can I come? And I was like, okay, let's do it. Once they got the bug to plein air paint, and even though they weren't qualified to do it, they, they were done. They were done with the drawing program and they went out and did their own thing. They dropped out like a couple months later. And so I found that like, once you give someone sugar, they don't want to eat their salad, mm. you know? And so it, that's just been my experience. And, um, so I, I'm careful with that. I don't let the, I don't let it run too far, you know, but, um, I'm very, I encourage them to be very creative about their assignments because my assignments are very broad. Like for example, a color assignment might be create depth using chroma, right? They can do whatever they want. They can use figures. They can use still life. It's usually still life because it's convenient, but they can paint. They, they can set up any kind of still life they want. And um, I don't care, you know, it can be weird. And I, and, and I get some really weird solutions. They're really interesting. Um, because of that but that's the limit i don't i don't ever let them break the rules so to speak um where they're not you know not following a- academic rules of value and form and proportion mm. um again because i don't you know there's a time for that after they graduate um I and see. many of them have when they graduate they'll start to play around with that stuff um but not so much here can I just geek out about that exercise you were telling me about uh, just now, create depth using Chroma? Do you give them a set number of values that they're allowed to work with? Like, how do you isolate the Chroma from the value in that context? Because value, of course, also creates depth. So how do you discern ah. whether or not they've created the depth using the value scheme or the Chroma scheme? Do you tell them you, only, you can only work with whatever two values, number four and number five, and make it three-dimensional? Like, how do you go about it? Well, it gets worse than that. There's, I mean, I think I've listed... I'm writing a book right now that's no, probably not going to come out until I die because I'm so slow. But <laughs> I think I found either seven or nine things that create depth. So like, it's actually a difficult assignment because you have to try and exploit the chroma without over-exploiting the other thing, right? So um, the thing that's actually more difficult than value with the chroma one is, is, um, is temperature. Like that's the one where it's difficult not to just do the same assignment, like do a temperature assignment, because you might, in, if let's say you have, let me think, how would that work? Let's say you have uh, a series of, you're painting, uh, this is a stupid example, but you're painting a series of racquetballs, blue racquetballs, just all laid on a table, right? And as you go back, you increase the chroma which is basically the same thing as increasing the blue, right? So you're also adding coolness to it. So it's like that, which is also another one of the assignments by, by adding, by making it with temperature, make depth with temperature. So I, I, we explain that to them. We talk about all the different things that create depth. And I ask them to set up a still life that will be most appropriate for using chroma. You know, mm-hmm. so racquetballs would be terrible, right? Because that's just going to be bluer in the back. And that's the other assignment, you know? Um, so they might do something more neutral, like a green, green objects or, or varied mm-hmm. objects. So they have to use multiple colors 
So some of them are more blue and some of them are more red in the background. They got to make it look deeper, even though they've added warmth to the background. You know, I'm sorry, I got it reversed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If chrome is more in the front, not the back. Um, but they might, you know, they might make the bluer blue in the front when it's more chromatic, but yet it's bluer. So it should be falling back and they have to figure out how to manage all that. Right. So we, you know, by, by informing them of all the other things that create depth, hopefully they're able to isolate it with each assignment. And when they succeed in isolating it again, then they move on to the next assignment. So. I like it. Let me, let me, um, let me poke, poke a little bit at, at, at another potential area of disagreement. So for me, I'm a big devotee of, of I wouldn't say big devotee because there are cr like crazy level devotees out there, but of the Mansell way of looking at color, you know, value, chroma and hue, and that's it. So under that paradigm of thinking, I have issues with thinking in temperature. As far as I'm concerned, temperature doesn't, there is no Mansell temperature moment. And so okay. when, people, when people talk to me in, in temperature, And of course, they're not, they're not as experienced as, as you most times. It's like it would be students. I would dissuade them from using that term. And I'm, I'm going to outline why. And then I hope that you're going to persuade me why I should adopt it. So what bothers okay. me about the fact that people use temperature is it's a conflation of chroma and hue, right? If I have a red and I'm telling someone or it's that somebody's telling me more, more likely that red's too warm. So what do they mean? Do they mean I need to shift the hue towards violet or do I need to shift the chroma towards gray, right? If I, if I take it towards gray, that is cooler. And if I shift it towards violet, that's also cooler. So I find that when people tell me, ah, oh, that's not cold enough, that's not cool enough, they don't really know if they need to increase the chroma of the blue or if they need to shift something along the hue wheel. I find that it, it, it actually is like an obstacle uh, on the path to clear thinking which I consider that to be, you know, the Mansell language. But... Oh, that's interesting. But, yeah. But, but a lot of very, very, very good painters, you among them, and also one of my teachers, David Nippo, are, are big fans of temperature. Now, I've never been persuaded that temperature is not, is not just like a strange reduction of half of the Mansell theory. Why am I wrong? And why should I start thinking in temperature, if at all? I don't, I don't think you're wrong. I think it's just semantics. Because everything, you know, you talk, I don't know a lot about them. And so the only thing I know is what I've read in uh, one of James Gurney's books. I don't mm -hmm. remember which one. Um, because I'm, I'm primarily a self-taught artist, frankly. Because um, most of what I learned in school was sort of ridiculous. But, um, but I, to me, when you describe the Munsell approach, it just sounds like semantics to me. Mm. You know, If you, if you want to make a red warmer, add yellow, well, that's also changing the hue. Okay. So it's changing the hue, but it's, and I would say it's changing the hue and the temperature. Um, but just, to me, it's just semantics. It depends okay. on how you want to define it. Yeah. That's oh. where I, I could, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I could go out and teach the way you described it the same way. And I think it's the same, the same effect, mm. you know, I, I feel like we could. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do it one day. We'll like sit down at a table with some color yeah. charts. I, 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 yeah, I would, I would absolutely relish that because I think, I think some nerdery is in order so that we can come out with a, ki <laughs> yeah. a, ki a, ki a kind of consensus that we could, that yeah. we could, uh, inf uh, you know, s try to convince people to go by. Um, but since you've, you've been talking about color, 
I, I have to kind of shift gears towards talking about your work. So your work, one of the things that makes it so identifiable is really how you use color. You know, you use very strong colors in your work. Sometimes these colors are, you know, also like multiple light sources. And sometimes those light sources are the opposite of what a painter would conventionally want. Like a lot of painters, me among them, I want a neutral color light so that it doesn't impose on, on whatever it is I'm working with. You went a completely different route with very, very colorful light sources. And sometimes they're conflicting. What, um, what brought you there? Like, where is that coming from? What inspired you to go down that route? And maybe just talk to us about your color approach. Um, so when I was in college, um, I did this whole series of life-size portraits. That was during that senior year that I was home the whole time working. And uh, in early on in that series, I had someone put on some colored sunglasses. And I don't know why, but I was so turned on by that. <laughs> like, like this is the, just the way the yellow from this, if I remember right, the first one was yellow. Um, the yellow of the lens cast yellow onto their face. And then I just went crazy with it. I'm like, that is the coolest thing. Painting, it was so much fun. Really, I wish it was more sophisticated than that. But that really is where it started. And then so I did this whole series with sunglasses. And then it moved into visors. And then I started realizing, dang, I should just start putting gels over my lights. And I can manipulate color all over the model. And um, so it's just an evolution from a simple accident of putting sunglasses on somebody. Um, but I just love rich deep color you know and then actually as you were asking me that i want to back up a little bit um one of the places where i think and then this ties into what i'm using with color sometimes well okay so i'm let me try and get my thoughts in order here i have a huge palette like 32 colors or something and what i do is i go in and i get the most saturated high chroma colors I can find. Um, and that's where I start. I have very few earth tones on my palette. Very, very few. Um, and, uh, and, and so to back up a little bit, I think there's a good place where I think chroma comes into play is that I can buy two yellows from two different brands and it's pure pigment that came from a natural source or maybe not, maybe a synthetic source. And one yellow is so vibrant and glowing with chroma and the other one just feels more dull, you know? And yet I couldn't mix that dull yellow because it's so subtle. I couldn't put blue in it without turning it green. I couldn't put red and blue in it without making it gray, you know? <coughs> Excuse me. So it's a subtle thing where in that particular situation, chroma is definitely relevant. And I, I exploit that in my paintings where I'm trying to find, get a palette of colors that's really chromatic. And, um, and, I, and I usually start even my flesh tones that way and start very chromatic and then kind of kill them intentionally as I mix in the compliments, you know, to tone down the chroma as necessary. So... Anyway, anyway, that was a really roundabout way of answering your question. <laughs> oh, I'm very, I'm very, very glad to hear it. Um, first of all, you know, you you brought up you brought up that sunglasses series. Like, I wanted to I wanted to talk about that one because I I really do feel like it's it's amazing. <laughs> I just love Thanks. that series, and now hearing you talk about it, it becomes 
eminently clear that it, it maybe is amazing because you really had fun making it. Uh, it, it oh, yeah, it just I blast. Dis- it displays such a joy of painting and such a joy of of color use that it's uh it's fun it's fun to hear that this was really a kind of genesis to to your broader um approach to color that's that's really beautiful and 32 colors on the palette oh my god maybe yeah. maybe you want to you know i know our listeners right now are going to kill me i don't want you to list them like right now audio but if you could just send to me you know that the list okay. so that i can put it in the show notes people if you're listening it's already in the show notes don't come at me that i'm not asking him to listen <laughs> right now. I, don't, i don't want it um so i think this leads us into a very uh, this is like a predictable question but i have to talk to you about it so you're dealing with this theme of color of the light versus local color of the object and how are these two uh forces basically collide Can you talk to us about maybe like how do you how do you think about that like which which one of them reigns supreme when like is there any role to thinking about local color in general like this this a lot of artists deal with with this with this con, kind of like um clash of opposing forces but it's not as common in painting as it is in for example like video games in video games you know your character walks into like this area of lava and suddenly there's like red light spilling on the face and so for me as a kid having played all those video games these were really satisfying and and and, and mysterious moments of light that we we barely get in 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 daily life but you right. seem to be an expert in it so perhaps you can share share your discoveries share your thoughts Well, the, it's, it's interesting you use the word collide because it's where those two things meet. Um, where, you know, and I, I don't even think this is what you meant by it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, the, the problem lies where the side of the face is lit with white light and the side of the face is lit with colored light meet. That's where the real problem lies. Painting the colored side is mostly just observation. You just look at it and paint the color you see. It's not, there's, I mean, of course I'm thinking about it, but it's hard to really know, um, separate intuition from, you, you know what I mean? From, from observation. Um, so, but what I'm, where I'm really having to put in some thought is where those two things meet. Cause oftentimes they conflict. So I might have like someone with warm skin and a blue light. I love blue light. So that happens all the time. And then if I, when I mix those two together where they meet, um, you get mud, right? Because you're pushing blue into warm skin and you get this really nasty gray transition. Um, and so that's the trickiest spot and you can't copy what you see um, in that situation. What I do is I follow the color wheel in that area and it's quick transition, relatively quick, but I'll move... I'll just move from blue to violet to red to orange instead of going from blue to orange. Um, and that way it moves, it bypasses the gray of the mixing blue and orange and goes through a beautiful color wheel transition into the skin tones. And it, it's really subtle. Most people could never see what I'm doing, but it works beautifully. Um, and I've seen a lot of people try the colored lights and that usually is the problem is there's just a lot of mud They mix those two colors together, the skin tones and the reflect or the secondary light source. It's just a mess. So that's how I get around it. So I want to, I want to take a moment to kind of explain 
what I meant with my question because qu clearly I was not really good at <laughs> at asking it. Sometimes I get into the woo, we, art is so cool, and then I, I I trip over my English. But what I what I actually meant to ask uh, was how do you deal with having to think, okay, this is like a person, he has this kind of color skin, then we shine a green light on it. How does the green meld into the skin tone, all that stuff? You answered it beautifully. You just said observation. So essentially I follow right. the same thing. A lot of people ask me, well, what if the person is dark skin and on the person you shine pink light and let it, I'm like, just, you know, get a model, shine the light. Let's see what happens. You know, there's the, my, my algorithm uh that is able to predict colors is 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 pretty fine-tuned but i i can't guess that you know i leave that stuff to observation but you went a step further and answered an even more interesting question that i feel compelled to touch on because i realized that we may not have have given sufficient exposition for people to understand what's going on here so essentially what jeff is describing is that a very strong theme in his work is actually lighting the same subject with different lights that have very, very, very different color notes to those lights. And what you're describing is what happens in the middle where the blue light meets the red light and, and how you're negotiating the transition. Did I get that right? Yep, yep. Amazing. <laughs> That's such a great answer. So you would say that you would transition if you had to go from blue to red, then you would just pass by purple, like purple would be your bridge. Well, blue, blue would be easy. Blue and red would be easy because it's going to mix to purple. Mm -hmm. It's when you go from blue to orange or you go from purple to yellow. Then when they mix, they turn into a gray. Um, it's so it's the compliments that you have to worry about. And that's what. And so like if I'm doing an orange light on skin on, on a on a Caucasian person, it's not a problem because unless their skin is really cool. Right. But most people are just warm enough that that transition is not in conflict. Right. Mm -hmm. But when I put a blue light on skin that leans toward orange under white light, that's where it's a problem because blue and orange are complements. They mix to gray. And then I can't do that. So I got to go backwards on the color wheel. I can't go from blue to orange. I got to go from blue back to violet, then to red, then to orange so that there's no gray. Um, but from blue to red, you would just naturally, if you mix them together, it would turn to violet. So that that would just happen by itself. You wouldn't have to make any effort. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I, yeah, I, okay. I, feel, I feel compelled to interject here with something that is perhaps rude. When you say, I can't do that because that would end up in a gray. To me, that's a person that we can file that under personal style. Right. Oh, because that's, that's, I can't do that. But, right. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no. But to the, to the people listening here, this is an, an absolutely beautiful way to close the circle on our, on our previous conversation, because for you, that gray is unsatisfying. If we look back at like 19th century, like Jacques-Louis David style, or, or even Rubens has these moments where, you know, the transitions are an almost like rude kind of gray, you know, when they, when they transition from, from the half tone to the, to the shadow, it's like the chroma, they're just like gone. And, and when I first saw those things in, in museums, because having grown up in Israel, I've only seen reproductions. And then when I saw it in museums, it's way grayer than the, than the digital images allow for and, it, or, or choose to capture or whatever. And I was shocked. I was like, where's the chroma in the transition? It's all totally, totally gray. And I'm going through personal, like psychological battles with this concept. Like on some days I wake up and I'm like, 
I want those great transitions. Like I want that Rubens flavor. I want that Jack Louis David flavor. And then on other days I wake up and I'm like, everything's gray. I can't have these gray transitions. And I, it's like, <laughs> it's like drives, it drives me absolutely psycho. So I guess you could say yeah. that on, for me, my personal style has not developed in that area of my game. I still kind of jump around and went, maybe I'm going to jump around forever. But what you're saying is like, for my style, can't have it like this gray, not doing it. And I think it's a, it's a really beautiful, beautiful way of, of expressing that you, you, you make your paintings your own. You develop your own voice by deciding what are the things that you cannot bear to have in your work and finding ways to make it so, to make it so that you don't have those great transitions that are not tasty for you. Yeah. You know, and, and, I have, I have to say, I don't love the word style. I understand how you're using it. It's totally appropriate. But the reason why is because it, it doesn't really speak to my state of mind. You know, um, when I make decisions like that, and I believe that even you or anybody, when we make decisions like that, it, well, if you're being authentic, you're not thinking about my style, right? You're thinking about, what is attractive to you in the, in the moment, right? So like one of my pet peeves, I love to watch HGTV, you know, with this channel with like where they do the interior design of homes and stuff. I don't know. Oh, you're not is. familiar with it? Okay. I don't well, have I like a TV. Design. Oh, you don't? Oh, you're a smart guy. <laughs> um, well, there's this channel called HGTV and they have like these um, home renovation shows and they'll get these people, they'll like find a family that wants their home redesigned and then they'll kick them out for a couple of weeks. They'll completely redecorate their home and bring them back. And one of the things that drives me nuts is when a family comes in and they say, oh, you totally found my style. And I think to myself, <laughs> if that was your style, why didn't you do it yourself? You know what um, I mean? I'm like, you're so full of crap. That's not your style. And so that, that part of the reason that that word is a pet peeve of mine is because it's really personal aesthetic is different than style. Style is something that you like when you see it out there in your environment, you know, where personal aesthetic is like, that's the thing you can't help but to choose, even if you hate yourself for choosing it. Right. Like I look at artists that I like so much more than myself, but when it comes down to making the decisions they make, I can't bring myself to do it. Even though I know it would make my paintings more like theirs and I like their paintings better. It's just not in my temperament. But you know what I mean? It's well, like, I it's totally know what so you much mean. deeper than, than just choosing a style, so to speak. It's like, it's, you're slave to it in a way. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a choice that you almost can't help. And so when it comes to that transitioning, um, yeah, it's like, I'll get a gray in there and I'm just like, oof, you know, I'm just like cringing. <laughs> like I can't handle the gray, even though I've seen the same paint of paintings you've seen. And it's like, they make these beautiful grays. And I'm just like, no, it's just, I know they're beautiful, but I just can't do it. I can't do it. I need more chroma. You know, it's just a weird sort of mental illness that I have. <laughs> yeah, so. I think, I think, I think this is my, this is my time to, to retort with with uh, with the same thing you use and say that that's semantics, right? For me, style is not at all like derogatory. And what I would use when I look at other people's work and I whatever appreciate it but cannot implement, I'd call it taste, artistic taste. But the only reason why I'm dwelling here is because I was I I was ready to like title this episode like personal style. And so let's find. Oh no, it would be fine. It would <laughs> let's be fine. Find, maybe yeah. personal voice. 
personal voice? No, personal style is fine. It's not like I, I resent the word or anything. Okay. It's just that I feel like um, when I think about decisions in my art, they don't feel like style decisions. They just feel like temperament decision or taste decisions. Right. It, yeah. It's temperament and it's style feels it, it's just, it's just an emotional response to the word. It's not a negative word. And it's not in, inaccurate. It's just an emotional response. It just feels too personal to just be a, a style. It, it feels like temperament. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would go, I would go a step farther and say that I don't think anybody should be trying to build their style in this kind of exactly. conscious way like that right. that's the problem the problem is not whether or not a style gets created but rather where is your focus and i think somebody's focus should definitely be on their taste preferences and 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 you know what what fulfills them aesthetically so if you're looking at the gray and you're and you're saying oh that's not my style that's not how people know me by then you're doing it wrong but if you're looking at that gray and you say doesn't make me happy doesn't make the painting happy can't go to sleep with that gray on that canvas, then you're doing it right. And then people, other people like me would look at your work and tell you, hey, that's your style. You seem to be going into those chromatic transitions more often than not. And then you can tell me, maybe it's my style. For me, it's just a preference. For me, it's just taste. So I yeah, think- Yeah, and if you say yeah. it's their style, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, yeah, that's a very good point. So, and that's probably why I have that emotional response to it. Because when I talk to my students, I would be weary of saying to them, at some point, you're going to have to, quote unquote, find a style. Because what that does for me is that brings back these, this experience of college of like, you better get your butt in those books and figure out what you want to be and become that person. Um, and to me, that's all, that's, that's all wrong. It's like, and I want my students to believe you just need to just paint and who you already are will show up, right? And, it, and if you're not who you already are, you're not marketable because you're going to be someone else and they've already got that corner of the market anyway. Um, so that's kind of why it's that emotional response. It's that emotional response. It's like, don't look for a style. Just be yourself. Be, be authentic. You know, um, just let your temperament come out in your paintings. And then someone else will say that's your style. Whatever. Who cares at that point? Yeah. You're just being yourself. You know, I think, I think authenticity is a very important word in this context. And also... I, I I would take minor minor gripe with the word just because I've I've had students who are very like they find it almost rude to say that doesn't look good to me. You know, they feel so compelled by sheer discipline to just do whatever they're they're told. And I think what you're what you're shedding light on is very is actually very important that people should at least be aware what makes them happy and what makes them right. unhappy in painting. And I think that's that's not something that everybody does instinctively. Instinctively, when you're a student, and I think on some level that's okay, you should just say, I don't want to think about my preferences. I want to do what Jeff tells me. I want to do Je Jeff's the teacher. Oh, he, that would he, be he, bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But they, they're coming at it from a good place, you know, and I have these kinds of students too that say, listen, like, I don't want to think what kind of brush works I like. I want to do what you do. And at that point, I think an intervention is in order to tell them, listen, if you just do what I do, you're just going to be some kind of small version of, of me. And me, the big version, quote unquote, is already not good enough. So be better than me. Don't be, don't try right. to be me. Be way better than me in a way that only you can. And for that reason, I do think that people need to, they need to actually put some emphasis on 
at least while you're studying, even if you can't implement it yet, just think, you know, before you go to sleep, just think, what do I love about painting? What kind of paintings make me happy? Are there any kind of common themes in those between those paintings that I'm like, oh, I seem to be whatever. I, I like Rembrandt's painting because A, B, C, and I like it more than any other painter. What is it about it? You know, thinking about what makes you happy in painting and what, what fulfills you in painting, I think is, that's what brings uh, a very necessary awareness. Uh, now yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm growing very conscious of your time, but I, I have to ask a little bit more, just a little bit more if you have okay. the time. Uh, yeah. can you, can you talk a little bit about your painting process and specifically like, is there kind of tension between the quicker, more a la prima ish resembling work and the more prolonged work? Like how do you negotiate, uh, mm. your, your process in terms of like these, these, these sort of differences? man you are really observant so it's it's interesting that you would bring that up because there was a point in 2008 where i took a two years two and a half almost three year sabbatical from selling paintings just to reinvent myself and that and and the reason why is because of that very conflict which i don't think i really have anymore and so what when i was doing the sunglass series um that we had talked about that was all done a la prima. I do like the head and neck and shoulders one day. And then I just connect the, you know, I come back and do the torso the next day and, and just piece them together. I never rework anything. It's totally wet into wet. That whole series was done that way for five or six years that I did it. Um, but then I was doing the religious painting where I, where I was looking. And I, well, actually I was doing the religious painting a la prima as well, but I was looking at Rembrandt and other masters and just like, I wanted, I, Rembrandt was my main, is my main influence. Um, I'm like, I, he's working in these layers that make these paintings have so much more depth. That's what I want. Um, so I started to experiment with layers in my religious painting. And then I started to struggle with the conflict between the two, because I was trying to be, I was trying to perfect both at the same time and then when i took the sabbatical in 2008 i'm just like screw it screw the sunglasses stuff i want to learn to paint more like rembrandt and so i spent two and a half years learning layers learning how to layer paint and so now i don't paint a la prima at all um mm. so ever since 2008 i haven't painted anything a la prima i mean if, if it's a demo i do but i only treat it like the first layer of a painting it's never finished you know because of how i paint now um, so, so in that, so that being said, there's really no conflict now, but there was prior to 2008. I'm yeah. so happy to hear you say that. So this, I have to drill down a little bit more on that. So when you are talking about coming from a more a la prima tradition and then trying to learn how to paint in layers, can you walk us through a few of your conclusions? Because I'm sure a lot of American painters are in that state of mind because a lot of American painting is taught heavy heavy a la prima and then these painters kind of leave those programs which shall remain nameless and i find in their work when they try to work in layers they hit a wall like seriously and so maybe yeah. you can you can give some tips to people who are maybe in that position right now well um one of the things that i found so um one yeah okay so one of my goals when doing this was not just to learn how to paint in layers. It was, I was also hitting a wall at the end of this uh, series where I was just no longer interested in it and just sort of feeling like I had hit a plateau and I wasn't gonna get any better unless I 
started making some changes. So in 2008, I also realized that the only way or decided in my own mind, and I think I'm correct, the only way I'm going to get better is to add more resistance. Um, so the other thing that I did in 2008 was I put away my camera for good. Um, prior to that, I was working with photography. I worked from life occasionally too, but I was working mostly from photography. I wasn't taking any shortcuts or anything. Shortcuts and quotes, I don't want to offend anybody, but I was just observing photography. Um, but I felt like maybe if I want to get stronger, I need to make it harder. Um, and what I realized is that doing multi-figure painting from life is pure hell. Like <laughs> the old, I mean, when people say that painting from life is easier, I want to strangle them. I'm like, <laughs> try a difficult painting from life. I'm not talking about just a head or a still life painting. Try a multi-figure, try 50 figures from life, you know, and then tell me it's easier. Um, it's, a, it's hell. You can't, in my opinion, it's nearly impossible to paint a la prima from life. So in a way, without even realizing it, I kind of forced my hand um, because when the models aren't there, the environment is not even in existence. The animals don't hold still. Um, the children don't hold still. All these, you have all these problems um, and you have to bring them all together into one Frankenstein painting. You can't just start in the top right corner and work your way to the bottom left. It just is impossible. You have to work in layers. You have to work with that model for the two hours they're available and then let it dry. And then you got to, when they come back, you got to pick up where you left off and make sure it all comes together. Um, so without realizing it, like I said, I forced my hand a little bit and um, I had to work from in layers. And to be honest with you, I still feel like I'm figuring it out. I mean, I've learned a lot about it. I've learned a lot about the significance of transparency to working from transparent to opaque. I think a common error that students make today because they are so focused on olive prima is that they don't have a proper gradient from transparent to opaque. I see a lot of atelier paintings where they have all opaque in the lights and all transparent in the shadows, where it should be a gradient. 0% opaque should be zero, I'm sorry, 0% dark should be 100% transparent. And then all the way to the to the other end, which is 100% opaque, should be 100% uh, light, right? So, and then and then the middle, if you have 50% opaque, it should be 50% transparent, 50%. I mean, sorry, 50% gray, right? If you have 50% opaque, it should be 50% gray. So, what I'm finding is that you get all opaque from from 100% opaque from from the from the core shadow to the light. And then you get 100% transparent from the core shadow all the way through the reflected light. And so you can almost peel. It's like you can stick your hand under the lights and peel it right off this canvas. There's just this drop in depth, <laughs> right? It's yeah. just like you've got the light here and then it just drops into the shadows. And it looks great on Instagram. But when you see them in person, it's like you could take a chisel and chisel off the lights. Like it's like it's cover up, you know? Um and that's one thing I learned in doing this and studying Rembrandt's paintings. I'd go back and forth to California and like and look at his paintings and that there's that perfect gradient from transparent to opaque that is absolutely a perfect. Um, it coincides perfectly to that gradient from light to dark. Um, and that's hard to keep, but it helps to have the right palette. You know, so your darks are all absolutely transparent. Your lights are all absolutely opaque. And that helps to have a palette like that. Um, but that's almost impossible to have a perfect palette like that. Um, 
So that's probably the biggest thing that I, I learned. Um, also managing, managing the texture of your paint. Um, one of the things that I did wrong early on was I used texture like icing. Like when I first learned to paint, I'm like, oh, the great painters use texture. So I paint a painting thin and then I add texture, mm. you know, and it was like, it was like decoration. Like I just put a little bit of icing on the cake, you know, and that's not how, what I'm discovering is that my paintings look more alive, more three-dimensional when the texture is part of the process. Like as you're layering paint, you put less, you, you just put more, you just put more body into the lights and it layers and layers and layers. And as you add more light, you naturally add more texture right? Because you keep building on the lights, trying to get more light into it. And then by building more light, you're also adding more paint. And as you add more paint, you're building more texture. So it, it's process oriented. It's not just like, just this decoration you add, Ooh, a little splash of light on the highlight, you know, like a little splash of texture on the highlight. Um, I made that mistake. And um, I'm kind of embarrassed of it. Those paintings are out there. It's totally embarrassing. But um, but I see it all the time. People still make it all the time. Um, but I can't judge them. I did the same thing. But that's another thing that I learned in layers is to be careful to let the process be the texture and not texture be decoration. Um, I don't know. But there are probably tons of things I can't think of right now. But it's it's very it's much simpler to paint a la prima because it's just very direct. You know where you're going. And when you get there, you've arrived. It's just, it's a straight shot. Whereas every night when you go home in layers, you're like, okay, I think this is how this layer should look. So that when I stack the next layer on, it'll look this way. And then the next layer will look that way and so on and so forth. So there's a lot more mystery. Um, but then the advantage of working in layers too, is um, you can always sand and repaint, you know, so there's that. You know, you can always scrape things off and start over too. Um, Jeff, I almost, I almost can't believe I asked this question the way that I did because I now realize that if I, if I even say half the things that I have in response to all the stuff that you just said is going to be a full episode onto itself. <laughs> so I think, I think for the, for I think maybe if you, if you'll agree to come on another sure. time and then we can talk about process because I know I've kept, I've kept you here long enough and, and you've been so inspiring. It, it was difficult to let you go, but maybe you can tell people where they can find you. Um, jeffhine.com is my website and uh, my Instagram is jeff underscore hine underscore art. But I also have a Instagram that's jeff underscore hine underscore studio where I show all the other things that I do. I, I have lots of hobbies. So check them both out. Amazing. You've been so inspiring and so generous with your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh my gosh. It's my pleasure. And I can't even believe that English is your second language because you have a higher <laughs> vocabulary than I do in English. And that's my first language. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. incredible. That's very gracious. Thank you, Jeff. I hope we get to do another one soon. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.